0: Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the Rothko Chapel. It's just a privilege to be here. I think it was about a little less than two years ago when we first were introduced to the idea and the work Some Light Emerges. Um, For us at the Rothko Chapel, it was really unique, and I I can't say how uh, generous you all were in allowing us to really have an inside view. I don't think that happens all the time. But to have an opportunity to see the libretto, to meet the libretto, librettists, and just get to know the creative team was uh, a gift for everybody on our staff and our board and community. So uh, thank you. And to, to be here um, is great because we're right on the precipice of performance. Uh, I mean, it's just great to have a little insight tonight and then to... Uh, not but uh, less than a month away. I mean, it's hard to believe, isn't it? Three <laughs> weeks or something. Uh, we'll all gather March 16th and 17th downtown, and it'll be just quite a festive uh, occasion. So thank you very much for, for being here. I also wanted to thank, thank Kareem uh, Suleiman. Is he Kareem here? Yeah. Right there. Thank you very much for sharing your gifts tonight on the plaza. The performance, I trust you. I think one of the things that uh, we uh, really value deeply here at the Rothko Chapel is that sense of hospitality, that sense of welcome, the sense of no matter where you come from, this is a safe place, this is a place to be who you are. Thank you for uh, lifting that up through your performance on the plaza, we really thank you. I think you also do a little operatic singing too, is that correct? Okay, well, we'll see on March uh, 16th and 17th. So again, thank you very much for being here. Um, The other thing I want to say is that after uh, this evening's uh, talk and program, we'll have a reception on the plaza, so please come out and have some more time to visit. It's a beautiful evening for that. Now, it's my uh, other privilege, I guess a lot of privileges this and pleasure, really, this is great, uh, to introduce Carlene Graham. Uh, Carlene is Houston Grand Opera's uh, HGO co-director. Um, she'll tell, tell us a little bit more about HGO Co. And Carlene, it's kind of hard because they're behind you, but just, Carlene's also fairly new to Houston. Uh, I met We met, uh, I think, just shortly after you arrived here last summer. How many of you all have been to an HGO Co. production? I thought that would be good for you to... But look, a lot of people have. Bravo, bravo. But I also saw a few hands of people that hadn't. So hopefully tonight we'll get the 100% turnout, right? Uh, and, and for those who haven't been, it's really great. My wife and I went to, Col- I think it was Columbia, old um, Columbia. And that was just an amazing piece. And that idea that opera really, it's about a narrative. It's about people's stories. It's about life and to have something to be in a room with people that had worked with NASA had been part of that narrative was just an amazing thing. So this will will be great. Just a little bit about um, Carlene. Uh, She moved here after a fairly long career uh, teaching at the State University of New York at Potsdam. Now, one little note there, she's one of the few people in my life that I've met that knows where Shazy New York is, because I used to live there as a kid in Plattsburgh. So it was great to have a kindred uh, Northeastern Adirondack spirit. Uh, Carlene, what I have just been really uh, great to get to know her, in all her work, you just see this one theme running all the way through. It could be bringing people into the academy or taking the academy out to people. That idea that community engagement is so important and creating spaces both inside institutions but outside where we encounter each other, we get to know each other on a personal basis, we share gifts and talents. So um, with that, I think you're in the right place. Uh, Houston is a place of engagement, if you haven't gotten that already. And it's a wonderful community to practice that, uh, that art, really. So uh, I'll just uh, want to come on up and, and have the mic. Tell us a little bit more about um, HGO Co. and what we're doing. All right, thanks. <clears throat>
1: everyone I'm delighted to be here to welcome you to this um, event that we've been planning ever since my arrival in late August to Houston um, I want to pass along um, both our, our our artistic director Patrick Summers and Perrin Leach our managing director are both in Washington DC this week for design Jeez. meetings for next year's productions and they are disappointed that they can't be here but send along their best wishes to everyone Some Light Emerges is the 17th work developed under the auspices of HGO Co.'s Song of Houston initiative that began in 2007 under the legendary leadership of HGO Co.'s founding director, Sandra Bernhard. HGO Co. connects Houston Grand Opera's creative resources with Houston's diverse and vibrant community. The Co in HGO Co. stands for Company, Community, and Collaboration. HGO Co.'s innovative community initiative and education programs provide a wide range of opportunities for Houstonians of all ages to seek, engage, and learn through the interdisciplinary art of opera. The Song of Houston initiative commissions new chamber operas and song projects that resonate with contemporary life in Houston and develops community projects that foster collaborations with many Houston area organizations. We are extremely grateful to the Rothko Chapel, especially to David Leslie, Ashley Klemmer, and Kelly Johnson for hosting this evening's event. We also acknowledge the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation, Bank of America, the Brown Foundation, ConocoPhillips, Houston Endowment, Houston Methodist Hospital, George and Linda Kelly, Marathon Oil, Opera America, C. Howard Piper Foundation, Glenn Rosenbaum, Karen and Harry Pinson, Gail and Mike DeGarren, Catherine and Mark Yazagiri, for making Some Light Emerges possible. I hope you enjoy this evening's event and that you will join us at the Ballroom at Bayou Place in downtown Houston on March 16th, 17th, or both nights, for a performance. You can even purchase your ticket tonight before you leave at the HGO Co. table outside. So again, welcome and enjoy your evening. Thank you.
2: So
0: I'm thinking to myself, how do I introduce this great group of people? Well I'm not going to take a long introduction, if you want the details, they're in your program, so please take time to look at that. But here's the words that came to my mind, award-winning, global, creative, curious, musically ecumenical, and deeply committed to sharing their love of opera with the world. So it's my privilege tonight to present to you Laura Kaminsky, the uh, composer, Mark Campbell, uh, the co-librettist, Bradley Moore, conductor, and Robin Guarino, stage director. And I also want to say, it's, it's uh, uh, unfortunately, Kimberly Reed, your co-collaborator, couldn't be here tonight. Why? Because she is working on
3: our first opera as one uh, in Colorado, in Denver. She's helping with the film. There's a film component to that. So she's up there rehearsing while we're having fun here. <laughs> and
0: I hear you got to get up really early. Several of you yeah, to get to we, 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 we tomorrow, got a all right? At seven. So we're going to cut this short and leave right now. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. We don't want that, do we? No way. So let's just di- dive right into it. Um, where did the idea of setting this opera at the Rothko Chapel? Where did this come from? How does an idea like this even get its birth? Well, it, it
3: it started first with... Um, HGO Co. has a, a, a... I hate to use the <clears throat> word competition, um, but it is a competition, basically, where you submit a proposal. Um, they identify composers uh, who whose work they want to encourage and promote, and Laura was one of those composers. And um, she said, let's apply for this. She actually came up with the idea of setting an opera in the Rothko Chapel. Mm. And Laura has this brilliant, our first opera, she said, I wanna write an opera about a transgender person. Our next opera is, I wanna write an opera about George O'Keefe. These are all great subjects, but then it's kind of like, okay, what specifically? So she came up with kind of a a sketch of a story that was set in the chapel. Um, It didn't have that much to do with Houston (laughs) or the chapel, but it was a start for, um, I actually kind of this is probably TMI, but um, I was on my honeymoon and I was getting emails from Laura like, you've got to come up with something. I said, I'm not sure I want to do it. I've got five operas opening next year. I'm on my honeymoon. I'm supposed to be busy doing that. Um, And and it was a nice husband. I have a nice husband, so he was very patient. But um, at any rate, Laura has a brilliant way of convincing people to do things. And... uh, I, fortunately the house we were staying in was freezing and the bed was really uncomfortable, which is not a good thing on a honeymoon. (laughs) And um, I got up about four o'clock in the morning, we had been communicating, and I said, okay, here's an idea. We will take four stories that span four decades of, And and there are stories specific to Houston, but they are also universal. There there, there are moments in American history that happen to be set in Houston. And then, um, and there will be one per decade. Um, And then I also said, originally I wanted to do this with a concurrent story about Mark Rothko and creating the chapel. Eventually, though, I think we all talked about it, and um, I wouldn't know what to write with Rothko. I just, I, I couldn't go there, um, and also there had been a play called Red that, you know, mm-hmm. had already really much, you know, talked about him a lot. And I was thinking, then it becomes like Sunday in the Park with Mark, mm. and um, <laughs> it, it just didn't do anything for me. And then the more I read about Dominique De Manel, the more I loved her. I, I said, I said, who is this woman? I didn't know anything about her, um, and. Then when I realized how important she was to Houston's cultural scene, um, the more I wanted to write about her. And um, I I think it was like four o'clock in the morning. By six o'clock I had kind of all of this stuff together. I emailed it to Laura. She was like, this is brilliant. Here's some adjustments. Originally there was a character um, named Albert. Uh, That came later. Originally there was going to be a story about a guy named Ernesto who worked for Enron which is not very operatic. Um, (laughs) Maybe not very strategic in this town Mm, either. Well, we weren't concerned about strategy at that point. But um, anyway, that's kind of how it happened. Fortunately, and so I've just taken credit for everything, which is ridiculous, because um, it goes to... This idea goes to Kim and Laura... And Kimberly can't be here enough, and which is a, a great tragedy for you guys because she's just really an amazing person to work with, and we adore her as a sister. But um, you know, these things go to Kimberly and Laura, and then we all kind of make adjustments to it, and then it becomes what was eventually submitted to HGO Co. We we ended up getting it, um, getting the, the commission. Um, and I don't know, you need to talk. I've been, I've hijacked everything.
0: That's all I'm saying tonight. I'm gonna to get on the plane right now to uh, Denver. Uh, no, I'm curious to how you, uh, what was the hook you used to sell this? Oh, come on, it's Laura. I wanna work with her. She'd <laughs> our, yeah. our,
3: it, it was a, our first opera, it turns out to be a a tremendous success. I mean, I didn't expect that. But this As One is now one of the most performed Mm -hmm. operas in the country. And um, it's there, it's just, I'm a little resistant because I'm writing, I have six premieres next year. And so it was kind of like, how am I gonna fit this in? That was Mm -hmm. one of the biggest things. Big question.
4: So so when Mark was in Istanbul on his honeymoon, Kim and I were actually together in an As One production that you were not, uh, we were in U- Utah.
3: No. Yeah. No, that was a different time. Yeah. So. No, 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 it was because so, my honeymoon was later. Okay.
4: <laughs> okay. So in any case, this idea came about setting this here in this chapel. I had been, I had lived this for summer in Houston, mm. and I didn't know anybody at all. I came for a, a short-term job, and I had rented a room in my secretary's house. Mm-hmm. I was in my early 20s, she was in her late 70s, um, and she was a very interesting woman. She was uh, Norwegian and went to church every day at 5.30 in the morning and was quite concerned about me because I didn't go to any place (laughs) of worship.
3: We're still concerned.
4: (laughs) (laughs) But I found the chapel. Right. And so she kind of was a little bit relieved that I found a place to come to. And I always have been a huge fan of Rothko's work. I discovered him when I was very, very young. His work has always resonated for me. And so when this opportunity came, when I was invited to submit a concept, I didn't actually have the fondest memories of that summer in Houston. (laughs) Um, My secretary drank a lot of gallo wine and ate vanilla ice cream for dinner every night and listened to very loud TV. And I was just a quiet little composer trying to write music. What do you have
3: against gallo wine and ice cream?
4: So I was like, well, I don't really know that I have a place that resonates for me about how I could write a beautiful story about Houston. And then I remembered how much this... Place spate, meant p- to me. Mm-hmm. And then that was the beginning of imagining it. And so originally I had this thought that we would take our beloved Hannah from as one.
2: Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm.
4: And we would bring her to Houston so that she would have her sequel. You know, that's mm. always a good idea. Oh, yeah. Especially in the movies. But that <laughs> Hannah would have moved to Houston and we would give her a new life. And that was what I originally proposed. Mm. And I made up all these characters and that's what I sent to you and messed up your honeymoon. Yeah. Um, and, and, I, I, and I quickly
3: jettisoned it. You sure you know. did. I, 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 said, I said, this is a...
4: But, yeah. A, so, so, but the idea was that this place, mm-hmm. which had been a respite for me, right. was going to serve as the locus. Mm-hmm. And that the chapel itself <clears throat> was a character. That the chapel yeah. speaks it has its music, and that all of these characters who I couldn't make up, and Kim and Mark nixed the idea of the further life of Hannah, (laughs) (laughs) so they had to come up with these characters, but that these different people all were seeking something, or finding refuge from something, or working with a challenge or a question in their life, and they all came in for a different reason and the chapel became a place for them to explore mm-hmm, mm-hmm. their worlds and themselves, and the chapel itself is a, a place, is a character. Right. And that was when the brilliance of my co mm-hmm. was this hierarchical structure of the Dominique overlay, and she keeps coming back mm-hmm. through, through the play, the narrative of the piece, as the story of the conception for the chapel the struggle to get it made, the artistic and humanistic philosophical issues that it was about, and then these people who come in, and each one, as Mark said, represents a different Decade and a different social and political issue right. that Americans have been facing since the 70s to today, and then there's the surprise ending, which I probably shouldn't talk about right now because no. we have to <laughs> lure you to come on March 16th to <laughs> yeah. find out. But the characters—basically,
3: it's a a, a a tornado comes in and destroys the chapel. That's the end of the. Article. <laughs>
0: But that's we'll just, a show, uh, we'll just But they don't have the budget for a tornado, yeah, right.
3: I can tell you. That's
0: a little low on that. But it, but it is very interesting to me to see, in a way, you're working independent of one another in one sense, but you're working very collaborative together. Yeah. And how these two things start to come together. Uh, I think it's a, that's a... You may want to just say a little bit about that. How, you know, the, the personship uh, that goes into developing an opera. A lot of people think... And,
3: and you know, I'm, I'm, I've become an advocate for librettos everywhere um, because no one knows what we do. But um, a lot of people think that an opera is music first, and then someone just fills in some words. Um, in this country, the, and there's a huge uh, golden age of contemporary American American opera going on. Houston is a great company to experience this golden age, but it often, always, actually starts with the libretto first. The story, the text, everything is written first. A lot of the decisions about the storytelling happen first with the the libretto, and then, if we're lucky, we get to work with a director like Robin who helps us correct things that didn't happen in this particular narrative, but the next one we work on will. Um, And then it goes to the composer, and then we work again. It's something that keeps evolving. Um, One thing I wanted to mention, uh, HGO Co. does a tremendous job of developing operas. They, have, they gave us two workshops, um, mm. and so we were able to hear the whole score. Uh, one was done with a program that Robin runs up in Cincinnati called Fusion, a terrific factory of operas that is mm. turning out tremendous work. They just did an opera called Fellow Travelers that will be going everywhere, and it's really a tremendous opera. In it. Um, and it was a, a tremendous opportunity for the three of us, all of us actually, mm. because once The composer and the librettist finish their job, then we invite our music director and our our conductor and our stage director to give us input. And if we're good, we also invite our performers, Mm. Um, there are a number of them here tonight, and Mm -hmm. to also listen to them and make adjustments in the storytelling so that it's completely clear. Mm. And that's what I think artists mostly aim for is clarity. Clarity, yeah, absolutely. I
5: think the evolution of this piece has been extraordinary. I mean, it, um, what you describe and also how it's evolved through the process of the first and the second um, workshops, you know, hearing the voices of the singers, the characters coming to life, and then um, Brad, your, your work with them musically and trying to figure out how, how their voices um, express themselves in this text and mm. music. And we made, there was a lot of shape-shifting yeah. that went on, especially Absolutely. in the second yeah. workshop and that Patrick, I think yielded. Patrick Summers
0: also you know, had his voice in there. Right. And it's very important. When I said in my introductory remarks, you know, it was really an honor to be invited in, several of us to read and to you know, look at for accuracy or nuance, mm-hmm. which got me thinking, it takes a lot of people to develop the concept, to get it on paper, to workshop it, the musicians, the stage hands, everybody. Opera how many people, how most... many people is, like for an opera of this nature, how many people do you think at the end of the day will have a, a, a piece of their uh, DNA in this? In
5: a little bit of their How many? Dozens. Dozens. Dozens.
0: Opera is the most collaborative art. Yeah. yeah. It, yeah. it absolutely
3: is. And if you, if you can't be a good collaborator, then you should not be working in opera. Is that right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Especially in terms of composers, a number of composers I, I've worked with like thirty or forty composers and a number of them may come into the symphonic world where the only person they have to deal with is a conductor and they kind of can rule a conductor. In opera, you're working with a well, I don't know about I don't you. Think so. I don't know that. that may
2: never happen with you. Right? So
5: I can relate a very, very, very <laughs> yeah. funny story of all of us thinking about Dominique Demunil sitting at her desk. And um, we were Googling pictures and looking at a desk, and we found a desk, and we were talking about this desk. It was French, but it looked very modernist influence. And um, so we sent um, the props designer over, Megan, to, to visit here. And I got this email that said, oh, no, 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 no. She never sat at that desk. She sat either at a card table that she would move Depend, strategically through the yeah, through through her uh, house, or a piece of plywood that sat onto file uh, cabinets, pile cabinets. Oh, yeah. and it was just you know all, a lot of research came, and that was also the relationship to to the Rothko Chapel and and people here who gave mm-hmm. us a lot of really great documentation. Photos. Yeah, it's
0: a very sharing community, and I, I think it, it it cuts across disciplines. that, that mm-hmm. just real. Joy of what you do every day and, and that joy and, uh, you know, that that compulsion to share it. I mean, mm-hmm. that's the bottom line. It, it, mm-hmm. It's 4 o'clock in the morning, you want to share it. You know, the it ideas, yeah, yeah. Or the ideas just don't stop, They don't mm-hmm. stop. <laughs> um, I know we want to hear a little bit and meet some of the performers if we could do that. Uh, the last thing I just want to say before we move to that part of the evening, uh, this first set, is uh, I had thought about the Rothko Chapel as a refuge from the cacophony of the sounds and the life of the city. I never thought about it as a refuge from the rooming house. And the, uh, that was pretty, that was very interesting that. Uh, or or but, from a honeymoon. Or, or well, from a honeymoon, yeah, right there. But I, I think that that idea again that is, is that this place is open every day, 10 to six, seven days a week, 365 or 66 days a year to be that place of, of engagement, a solace uh, to, to contemplate, which is such a joy. I mean, gift. We don't have enough of that, I think.
4: If I can just say one of the things that, that moves me so much about the, the originating <clears throat> vision for this space, which is so core to how the story plays out, is, is the intimacy of the one-on-one relationship of each person who has their own mm. experience here, mm. but it's part of a very big, philosophy of we're all human beings together in this world and right. there is this this global <clears throat> pacifism human humanistic underpinning to so much of the history of this institution Mm -hmm. and that's really moving when you look at all of the different leaders who have come here to think and talk and share ideas about like why we keep screwing it up as human beings (laughs) and how we can make a better world. I mean that's so moving. I look forward to
3: our our current president paying a visit you know when he's not doing whatever he's doing right now. We'll hold that for
0: another okay. part of the program.
3: Uh, Mark, I'm gonna turn it over to you. Yeah, I'm, I'm just gonna introduce the song. Um, and the first aria we're gonna hear from *Sunlight Emerges is, um, it's called A Place Apart. It's the, um, it's the first scene in the opera. Dominique de Menel has visited Mark Rothko in uh, New York. And uh, she is now on a plane in Idlewild Airport, before it was renamed John F. Kennedy Airport, or it was just renamed John F. Kennedy Airport, which you'll hear in the lyric. Um, and by the way, the lyrics, we have the lyrics printed here, so you can read along. This is a... Give The
2: year. The what? The year. Yeah,
3: I was about to do yeah. that. Um, 1964 is the year, which you can also read here. And um, uh, she has just had um, met Rothko and is starting to conceive this very place. She's starting to think of a place where people can go that is ecumenical, um, that is, she doesn't say this in the lyric, but that will, we hope, will celebrate peace. Um, it's at a time in in the country where things are, you know, have been torn apart. I really can't think of a time when that hasn't happened myself, but um, uh, and she's on a plane, she's waiting for the plane to take off and she starts dreaming about the chapel of this whole idea. Did I miss a detail?
4: And this is not the whole aria. Yes. It's an excerpt.
3: Yeah. yeah. Well, it's, it, it's most of the whole aria. What you won't hear is when other voices come in and, and echo what she's saying, but can we start? I didn't introduce the singer. I'm it, Elena Dajacek, thank you. Yes, and too. Jeffrey at piano. Thank
0: you. you know, one of the, uh, as a, uh, a layman in this discussion, I, I'm struck by the term sound world. Mm. And this question um, elements of the Rothko Chapel and the libretto sound world. I mean you start to string those together. They've got a lyrical rhythmic flow to it, but it's like a language I don't usually speak. Can you what what does that do?
6: For, I mean what does this do? I'm yeah. going
4: to ask Maestro yeah, to, a, to say God, something. To talk about a
6: composer's work in front of the composer. You know, it's a <laughs> privilege. You know, we, <laughs> She's been wanting to get to Bistro Manil for a glass of wine. for something. <laughs> <laughs> no, we, we can't go back and ask Verdi or Wagner what they thought about something. Right. And that's the great privilege of getting to work with a living composer. say, what do you mean when you wrote this? So when we refer to the, when I refer to the sound world, I think about, about instrumental colors that are unique for instance. Uh, Laura's put together a, a group of seven players who are playing about about. about 8,000 instruments. There's a (laughs) uh, a piano trio, piano, violin, Mm -hmm. cello. And then we have uh, an incredibly interesting wind combination of alto flute, bassoon, and trombone. And sometimes the alto flute plays a normal flute. It's usually very much the other way around, but in this score, it's much more often the alto flute. Uh, and then we have a battery of percussion, an enormous battery of percussion, and not just uh, you know drums and bells. We've got tubular bells and rain sticks and sizzle mm, cymbals. Marimba. Marimba, yeah. vibraphone, maracas, and claves.
4: No and timpani.
6: No timpani. <laughs> so no There's room no for space. timpani. Yeah. Uh, and so I think that the, the way that the, the sounds of these individual instruments combine uh, is, is one way of thinking about the sound world. And then uh, you can think about the certain harmonies that are used or little melodies that come back. Mm-hmm. Jeff, would you go to the piano for a minute and, and help us out here? Uh, mm-hmm. Play the Some Light Emerges theme for us. It's, it's quite a simple cell. Mozart uh, made some use of those four notes in the mm-hmm. Jupiter Symphony. It doesn't sound anything at all like the way that it appears uh, in Laura. And I give us the, a place apart, the Albert theme, if you would. We actually get those two things right on top of one another just after the where we got to in the aria. Um, maybe give us a little bit of the whizzing sixteenth notes of the voice of the chapel. You can f- fake it if <laughs> 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 you. you <know>. <laughs> 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 Great, great. Often when, when, once the, the characters have had their moment of epiphany and the chapel begins to speak to them, you hear this happening in different mm. instruments. It happens in the violin, it happens in the vibraphone, and then there's a chorale theme that comes on top of it, and the chapel itself starts to sing. And so that's another element of the sound world, is little recognizable units of music that you can, that you can understand that, are, that function together just like characters in the, in the
4: drama. And and one of the things that I was really conscious of, because this is such an intimate piece, and it's a small ensemble, although there are a zillion um, percussion instruments, (laughs) was that for each of the characters, I wanted to create sort of the voice of those characters beyond their singing, Ah. so there were different instrumental combinations. that belong to different characters. And so there are these Mm -hmm. different sound worlds. So when Alicia sings, Mm -hmm. there's only certain instruments playing. And Mm -hmm. when Dominique de Menil has her arias, Mm -hmm. I often assigned Important bits to the bassoon. Mm-hmm. It was my own private joke to myself because she was a French origin, yeah. and right. double reed instruments are are French. Right. And so. Oh, I
0: like this. We can really sound <laughs> very sophisticated <laughs> the night of Not the opera. That right. I like this a lot. <laughs> Keep going. Um, and
4: and and then and then there's there is a piano trio that's mm-hmm. used as a piano trio. Mm-hmm. There's a um, sort of folk. Popish quality mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. one aria where it's just piano and some clave. Mm-hmm. So that there are all these different kinds of sounds that sort of delineate each character. Mm-hmm. And then, like Tom's character, he's this kind of young dude from mm-hmm. a small town, and he's a worker. And so I wanted... And he loves the natural environment. Yeah. He's nostalgic for yeah. his oh, town. Yeah. And so I wanted to kind of evoke some kind of Americana, slightly sentimental Mm -hmm. quality against his sort of like, you know, bustling Mm -hmm. energy, Mm -hmm. gruffness. Mm -hmm. And so those things are joined together in his aria. And so it's Tom's sound. Um, And the trick, the the fun part for me, and I won't give away the ending, but when these characters have their big scene, I had to find a way to weave together each character's own music which was orchestrated a certain way and had its own rhythms which mm-hmm. was really part of the hardest part of putting this together with the chapel's music because mm-hmm. i really think of the chapel as a voice to make something that mm-hmm. all coalesced at the end mm-hmm. that that told one big story yeah.
0: yeah that's very interesting because you know as you noted you know this is a place that gets all kinds of people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, probably millions if you go back over 40, almost 50 mm-hmm. years of history. Everyone with their own story, but everybody combining that story with another story. And suddenly you've got to try to find, you know, the, you've got to honor the distinctive voices at the same time there is a common narrative mm-hmm. that you're Absolutely. trying to explore through right? Absolutely. That, right? Yeah. Similar, it sounds like here. Mm-hmm. You alluded to something that's always of interest in collaboration. Mm-hmm. I, I go back to this. What was it? Opera is the most collaborative form of of art in a way. Um, I've done a lot of collaboration, but on other things. Some of that's joyful and some of it's a challenge. Mm -hmm. Talk a little bit, if you can, just a little insight into... Those moments of like, I just can't do this anymore. Were there any of those, or this is the greatest? I I was afraid we we're going to hit this silence. Like, what are you talking about? But uh, you know, kind of that 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 part of working together as a team. How do you do that? Where where, where have been those high moments and kind of you know, step back a bit, and breathe, it's, and get back at it again? It's a
3: very tricky thing. Mm. Um, it's it's. Um, I love it, I really love it. I even love it when it's very challenging. The thing that you do when you start getting into those difficult walls, you have to remember that everyone here wants, and Carlene and and Emily, everyone connected with this opera, wants it to succeed. Mm. So you may hit a wall, Mm and you're like cursing at Laura, I haven't cursed at you yet. You know, no, you that Always might happen cursing later. at me. <laughs> no, no. Um, no but, but you run no, into these, right. these things like, why can't you understand what I'm saying? Mm. And then you have to say, because you're not saying it clearly mm. often. And that's that's a sign of good collaboration is going back and, and, and going, it's because you're not explaining, it's not clear enough. It's, it's, and so it's, you know, we, we had a lot of challenges, because it's a difficult story to tell. It's a very complicated story to tell. It runs, um, there are two narratives, one's running forward in, in a different chronology than the other one, um, and it's a, it, it, there, we had a few obstacles. I think we overcame them. I honestly, Monday was our first day of rehearsal, and it was the first time I sat back and went, you know, this is pretty good. You're talking this about is, like yesterday. Yesterday. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That was yesterday. <laughs> what city are we in? I don't um, know.
5: Well, it was, no, it but, was tricky because yeah. I think that it's true. You, we had the narrative of the conceiving of the chapel and um, and Dominique's journey to build this place, and then the individual narratives of each person, and then as you said, the the character of the chapel, which is also it is a place, it is a structure, but it had its its own form and for me what's so interesting in these workshops is is there's a moment in every creative process where the piece tells you what you need to do that's absolutely and we true. all have absolutely to listen true. to it and getting at it is that's the place where often there's conflict because everybody's trying to get to the truth of that moment mm. and you have to wrestle with it here's and, here's and,
3: a, a, oh, sorry oh, no, just i just because um, here's a good example of how a a good collaboration can work. As I said before, we did a workshop at our our last workshop. And there there was a, um, the original arrangement of the arias of the stories was different than what is going to be premiered. And I Ah, think it was Robin who said, I think it would be great if we took that second character and put him here and put the first character here. And that is the sort of thing where everyone has to listen and we go, you know, Look at all of the advantages of that, and that—that's—that's yeah. that's what a workshop but can do. But that really do. wasn't and me
5: talking. That was the piece talking, yeah. and that's what I mean about it. But when oh, you I when see. you when you told me that story today or the, the other day, I didn't remember saying that, but I did remember that the piece said that. Mm-hmm. And yes, and that but is, then
3: you had, but then you brought it to us, and yeah. then it's up to us to listen to it and go, yeah, that's actually a great
2: idea. Yeah, yeah.
4: Yeah, I mean, I think that that part of what's so valuable about this workshop process is that you know when the libretto was conceived, it starts on page one and it ends on wherever the end occurs, mm. and we think that you read it as a chronology. Now, some opera stories need to be played out this way, but because of the nature of the original concept of this piece and and the fact that the characters, other than Dominique de Menil, were imagined characters, it was what is the essence of each of these person's narratives mm-hmm. in and of themselves mm-hmm. that needed to be told, and mm-hmm. then where they were told and how one flowed mm-hmm. into another. So I, I had to take those stories and I just accepted and believed them, as mm-hmm. did we all, and build the music to support the characters. Mm-hmm. And then we started to see, well, wait a second. And then there was this idea: if we switched this order, it meant some rethinking of some of the bits of the mm-hmm. story, the mm-hmm. the actual yeah. sung part. But it allowed certain things to happen musically uh, yeah. that were different. So it shifted certain energies, right. and it, it 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 just re-aligned right. what was really the core, like the, the truth, the, the truth. elemental truth, I, I, the, the yeah, elemental
5: right. truth. And that uh, that was so interesting, also,
4: because one of the things that happens in this piece
5: is that. People keep coming back to this place, so there's a kind of shifting light motif. The context is time, and right. but the place stays stable, mm-hmm. and that was really interesting to see the lens of time and the repeat visits, how people cha- shifted over that. Mm-hmm. Time. And, and
3: some of these decisions are not just, you know, we we're, we're getting a little bit artistic here, yeah, but yeah. Um, some yeah. of these decisions <laughs> can can be so utilitarian mm-hmm. that one of the things that guided this decision is the fact that there were three, um, there were three arias or four arias in one place that were all sung by female voices. And it was like, wow, we need a new sound here. And so that's why we brought in the baritone at that moment. It can Mm -hmm. be based on something as simple as that.
4: But the minute that idea happened, which came out of a sonic Mm -hmm. Yeah, right, right, right. The energy is lagging Mm because there's too much of a certain pitch
3: Mm -hmm. set. Mm -hmm. Absolutely.
4: As soon as the idea to well what if we broke it up differently, Mm -hmm. then then it was like, well wait, what story is Tom telling as opposed Mm to Alicia Marcy, telling yeah. or Margie Marcy, telling yeah. and well what does that do to the message of the big narrative arc and it was a matter of a few tiny little bits of adjustment oh, yeah, to, to point out what was the, the core right, right. Hu- humanity underneath each of and these characters. And what was characters. particularly right, yeah. brilliant
6: about that <laughs> was that you had these two characters I mean uh, Dominique de is the is the, the principal character of one sort of chronology and then (laughs) Mark. Exactly, thank you. And and Margie is is the other. And when there's when their two stories are right next to each other, you can't really tell that their chronologies are different. But by separating them it became clear. And we did that today. We got up and we 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 have a set that's designed to look like this octagon. And this, this chorale that appears just at the point where Yelena stopped singing just now can sound like a bunch of stuff on top of one another. And we took it and we we moved them all apart the room, we put them in different groups and suddenly the whole thing it emerged.
4: I mean, it's... To Maestro's point, mm-hmm. can I call mm-hmm. you Maestro on the stage? If you
6: must. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I don't like that anymore. But, but, but that's, that's sort of
4: the whole magical mm-hmm. mystery about this collaborative art form because for me, I'm a very visual person and so as I'm composing, even though I didn't know who was being cast, I had to see the people. Mm. I mean, I knew what Dominique de Manil looked like, but I had to make my own Alicia and Margie, right. and I had to physicalize them. And I would walk around and be them as I was writing <laughs> the lines. And as you were just saying, like just these these overlapping characters, when there is mul- when there are multiple voices singing, I actually wrote some of those lines with the harmonies, which are really kind of jazz harmonies. Mm-hmm. In my, in my visual imagination about where they were going to physically be, mm-hmm. because I was hearing them separated. And of course, mm-hmm. we were rehearsing very dutifully in a line mm-hmm. of music mm-hmm. stands and chairs all in a row. And it's like, I didn't mm. write that. That sounds really bad. Like <laughs> getting, <you're> <laughs> and then, and then side, I said, right? do you think it's okay at this <clears throat> early yeah. stage mm-hmm. to just move people where yeah. I'm imagining mm-hmm. the sound going? Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden we heard these different people Mm -hmm. sparkle. And it's like that's such the beauty of this collaboration that, you know, there's that trust and respect. Like, Mm -hmm. Maestro, can we try this now? You know, Mm -hmm. even though it's only our first day or our second day, you know, moving people around. And then Robin has to, in the moment, Mm -hmm. go, oh, well, given that that's what you want Mm sound-wise, what does (laughs) that do dramatically? Where did these people go? How Mm -hmm. do we experiment with that? That's what's so exciting. It's so much fun.
0: You know, it's interesting. I, Of course, I wasn't here in February of 1971 when the chapel was dedicated and opened, but I've read a lot and heard, had a lot of personal testimonies. And I think they were working on the chapel up until the, about the minute it was open. Yeah. You know, Sounds like an opera. Uh, you know, paintings were coming through the, the <laughs> mm-hmm. skylight. Well, we capture the,
3: that in one of our... Right? Our, part yes, of yeah. it.
0: The, uh, I don't know if the uh, plaster had totally dried. I mean, wow. there were things yeah. like that. So you're at one hand, trying to get it ready, but you know, you gotta open, you gotta open. Uh, is it, you, I think I just heard it, is that opera in its making too, that you may be twe- you know, working on this? Uh, at what point do you say, it's done, this is it, or do you still oh, make the so, adjustments uh, that's as you so go through? That's so tricky.
3: Right now, I would say, because uh, making revisions at this point is so expensive, um, and also time consuming for the singers, the singers have learned their work, mm-hmm. so the revisions we make now until the opening will have to be really, really minor mm-hmm. um, and that's why we have the workshops to to make those bigger decisions early on right I mean
4: I think at this point in the process with all of this ama- these amazing dedicated, beautiful singers who have taken these characters in, our work is Largely done. It's their, their work now. Word goes over like mm-hmm. you guys.
0: Can have the, <laughs> yeah. sleep the now.
3: <laughs> and not just that. It's,
2: it's, it's but, their fault
3: it, yeah. now. Oh, it, oh, you I, can blame it on. Yeah, we can now blame them. But, but I think the cre- do we have plausible uh,
0: deniability? I
4: think, and, oh no. But I think so much of what's happening now is the finessing and the nuance mm-hmm. and and the creative solutions of the thing. Right, mm-hmm. and and that's your job, and you're doing such well, a job with it. Well, we have an incredible cast. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of them. Yeah, yeah let's really see. Really yeah. Let's, let's see. A, can, yeah. we can we you can get us stand, us stand, stand?
0: Anybody in the cast or production? I saw Kareem yeah. and. There we go. Yeah. Amy. Uh-huh. Yeah. Wow, yeah. beautiful. Wait, she's oh. she's <laughs> <letting you know. laughs> that's great. That's great. You know, this might be a nice segue, Mark. We're going to do here another... uh, Yes, it's a lovely uh, segue. If you could set that up Um, and introduce our Sure. We are doing
3: another song uh, performed by the beautiful Zoe
6: Reams. And um, this song is... This character, uh, her name is Cece... Um which is really confusing because one of the other characters in the room is named Ceci. No. So she's not singing. Her real name, her real name, her her is, her name Ceci, is Ceci, in fact. She, she, yes. So we've
4: got Ceci is singing Alicia and Zoe is singing Ceci. You try and get that right in a row. So we're, we're,
3: right we're having Ceci change her name <laughs> we're, we're not going to change the character's name. I can tell you that um, <laughs> Cece is uh, is a woman uh, who has arrived from New Orleans during Katrina, as you all know, that um, in, in Houston. I think it didn't. It's, isn't this when Houston was dubbed the Big Heart? Um, and uh, this was one of these stories where I was reading about Houston history. What can we honor? in this city? You know, when did it do some good for people? Not, you know, during Enron or anything like that. But, um, uh, and I read about this, and I lived in New Orleans a long time. I have a long history with New Orleans. I happen to really love this city. And I do feel that that was one of the greatest tragedies in American history. That was not a natural disaster. Let's be clear about that. Um, and, I decided to create this character of um, Cece, who is a teenaged African-American woman taken in by a family in Houston. She arrives here, she's not happy. She misses New Orleans. Um, Who doesn't miss New Orleans? You know what it means to miss New Orleans, sorry. That, uh, and um, she, She arrives, she's been taken in by a family, she's not crazy about the family, they're not really crazy about her, they didn't know the responsibility they would face in taking in a whole family from New Orleans. Um, She goes to class, she's a little bit rebellious, you'll hear it in the lyric how she rebels. She happens to have a really great teacher who says, you know what? You're an artist, there's something there about you. I wanna honor your rebellious spirit instead of penalize you for it. Um, I suggest that you maybe take a bus and go down to this place called the Diminelle Collection. She goes there, she wanders into the Rothko Chapel. And at first, it's ridiculous. She sees someone practicing yoga. She is an African-American woman in a place that doesn't often embrace her, Um, but she starts noticing the panels, um, and she sees a little bit of purple. And I would say this song is about the birth of an artist, um, how another artist has meant something to her. And uh, it's a song we're really proud of, and we're so proud of Zoe and um, the work that she's doing. And Jeff is gonna be at the piano, so um, this name of the song, and by this, where is it? this takes place, of course, in uh, 2005, uh, Katrina, And um, it's called George Washington into Mona Lisa.
7: out the music
5: The great thing about new, new work is that you have the time when the singers hear the work for the first time and the mm-hmm. audience hears it. And I just had this thought that the paintings were hearing it for the first mm-hmm. time. Yeah. And oh, really that's, really cool. Yeah. that's cool.
2: That's
0: yeah. cool. You know, one of the things that's um, a <clears throat> question about a work like this is how does it, and we've explored a lot of that this evening, how does it interact with the living nature of this place, the Rothko Chapel? Uh, this latest, that last work in 2015, We did a a whole series of programming around the 10th anniversary of Katrina, including out on the plaza with music and dancing, and then in here, of really uh, having people from all kinds of backgrounds talk about that experience. And this just adds to that narrative. So thank you uh, for sharing that with us. I mean, it's beautiful. Thank
2: Thank Thank you.
0: one last round, one last question, I think, and then we'll, let's open it up to uh, folks that are here tonight because I'm sure they've got questions. You know, every time I come to, I come to the chapel, I come to work and I'm here, I, I really am so aware of those epics in a way. You break it into decades or into periods or whatever. And that the Rothko Chapel is a conversation with the now. It's a mm-hmm. conversation with, with what's happening now at the same time, when we go back and we look at that, uh, that the vision that you captured in the mm-hmm. first aria about where does this emanate from Mrs. de Manil and Jean de Manil, that it was really also rooted in very timeless, ancient uh, uh, texts, uh, ancient, timeless images of peace, of how do we live together, how, fragmentation, et cetera. Um, how does this, what does this talk to today? I mean, how, how do you see that interaction, this opera, in the context of today? Because um, this was built in a context.
5: And when we're thinking <clears throat> we, there is such need for sanctuary today uh, and a place of no judgment where people can come together in an inclusive nature and feel safe um, and with in dialogue with the time, and uh, I mean... I, when I first talked to Laura about this piece, and I had read the libretto, I said it feels like a, re- a requiem to the 20th and the 21st century,
2: mm-hmm. and
5: um, and it just felt like that over time with these people bringing in these very impacting moments, and not some moments that we aren't so proud of in American history, and um, and how to come out of those moments without losing. But
4: growing. Yeah, I mean, and I think, I, I mean, I think that I've written a lot of music that speaks to social and political issues, and so it was, it was important to me that this story and these characters didn't. It wasn't just a fairy tale, and it was mm-hmm. lovely, and we had a wonderful time in Houston, but that there was something of meaning in the stories, and I mm-hmm. think that Mark and Kim imagined these beautiful mm-hmm. characters. Some of them are specific historical moments in American history, but they're universal issues. Mm -hmm. So when Alicia comes in, she's at a funeral for her best friend who died from AIDS, who was eschewed by his family and his Mm -hmm. church. Mm -hmm. Now, that was particularly resonant in the late 80s through mid-90s in our country. It's not as big of an issue in terms of how AIDS has been... Normalize. I, this is a horrible way to frame mm, it, but right. that's less likely to happen now. But there are other similar kinds of issues mm-hmm. around lack of understanding, fear, yeah. and pushing people out. Right. So that's a specific story, but it's a general story. Yeah. And so with each of these stories, there's the moment in history that we can all you know, connect they're, to, they're all seeking but something. we can see these as a bigger human dialogue yeah. and a yeah. bigger... <clears throat> But these,
3: I, I, I think it's very important to mention that these are, while they are universal, they are specific right. to this yeah. place. That's right. The, 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 the first thing that I did was read a lot of wherever I could, any information I could find about the Rothko Chapel. I had not been here yet. I had already created this premise without having been to the chapel. And uh, also reading a lot about Dominique de Manel. Um, but... When I read that the chapel was a place for gay men to have memorial services Mm -hmm. for their comrades and friends who had died of AIDS because the churches in Houston were rejecting them, that I'm a gay man, I had to tell that story. Mm -hmm. And I happened to have chosen a lesbian activist to tell that story, Alicia a Latina lesbian activist. Another story we tell in this is a a character named Albert who comes to this chapel after September 11th. He's an Algerian. He's being rejected at work, of course. There's a a lot of prejudice, which is uh, just way frighteningly too timely uh, to what's going on now in our country. Um, He comes to the chapel seeking help from, uh, I I can't say God, um, but from from some kind of a, a higher form to help him understand how this happened. He asked questions. And the thing that I love about the chapel is that it encourages people to ask questions. Right. It doesn't do what many churches open their, you know, open their doors and say, we have the answer. And if you don't follow our answer, then you're gonna perish in hell. One thing that's so beautiful about this place is, is that there are questions that we have to keep asking. And if there is a time, at least in my own life, that we need to be asking questions, it is now. Um, it is a frightening world out there. And we are not going to do it uh, to, to get ahead by divisiveness, and I'm being very divisive right now, aren't I? Um, but, but by asking questions and to have this sanctuary, this beautiful sanctuary that this woman and this man, Dominique and John, commissioned they 're my best friends now, um, and um, created with this artist mark rothko it 's a sanctuary that's is still so relevant to where what we 're right. going through now uh, it, yeah, go
2: ahead, sorry.
4: I, I was just <clears throat> thinking since we 've mentioned almost all the characters, I just we haven 't really given enough of a clue in to both Tom and Margie right. and so I just thought I would just take a second to do that, so I alluded to Tom being this sort of this you know dude worker guy and he comes in cuz it's hot he's been making a sidewalk and it's hot and he just he's comes in He's a
3: construction in. worker outside working on the sidewalk yeah, yeah. and and mm-hmm.
4: and he's like oh god so he's Thank seeking god. a little
5: relief yeah, yeah. <laughs>
4: he's coming in for the AC and he's like where am i and he makes a connection between wow like somebody made this there's art here there's craft here kind of like what I do and there's an art and a craft to what I do and then he starts really paying attention like he finds that shared mm-hmm. humanity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then he starts to look, and it lets his imagination right. go. He starts and it journeying takes him, it he starts journeying him with the He starts journeying and it takes him to his rural landscape and his As, sort of na- nature bound memories.
3: Mm-hmm. As the libretto says, it allows you
0: to look beyond. Mm-hmm.
4: Yeah. Mm-hmm. And,
3: and
0: I, I, go ahead, yes,
3: please. No,
4: go on.
0: No, I was going to say, I mean, I think that is the genius and the invitation of this place. Mm -hmm. to look beyond, to envision, to imagine things that maybe... And to question. And to question, and and I think this is relevant to today's contemporary piece, um, and also to the last number, which is to be invited to explore. Mm -hmm. Because so often we're not encouraged, we're not invited. Uh, But this is a place that always extends that invitation, Mm -hmm. and it does it in the DNA of the building itself, Mm -hmm. but it does it through all these... Uh, You know, whether it's a meditation on a Wednesday, Mm -hmm. a program today, a musical uh, get-together for the museum district on a Sunday. Right. It's it's that engagement all the time. And I think for people who have been here, as you leave this building and you walk out and you see Barnett Newman's broken obelisk dedicated to Dr. Martin Luther King, you can't help but be struck with that interaction that it's not just to be left here. Yep. Mm-hmm. Right? This is a, It's a place of, of, of invitation for transformation mm-hmm. of both the individual and the collective. Yeah. Yep. Let me do this. Let's open it up and Great. see. We've got a few minutes. Um, we've got a couple of microphones, and I see a first yeah, right right down down hand down right now. Down We're going to start. Come on down right up front. And if, you, if, you, if it's some question you want to direct to one person, please do that. If you want to panel at all, we'll do it that way, too. How
5: was the name light emerges, determined for the peace. Mm-hmm.
0: Say it again, I'm sorry. How, how did the title emerge? Oh, it's funny. We
3: had, uh, we had several titles. Um, mm-hmm. And what would the, uh, the night has no Wind- eyes or win- what windows, was it? Win-
4: Windows open into night.
3: Windows open into night. There was another um, one. Um... But the the title actually came from something Uh Dominique de Manel uh, said, which is, if you look at the paintings long enough, some light emerges. Mm -hmm. That was my favorite title, Mm -hmm. but I I allowed my, Kimberly was coming up with other really kind of more beautiful titles. But then ultimately, um, Patrick Summers at HGO said, I like some light emerges. And we are I love it. I think it's a,
4: it's a cool title. And 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 the line is in is sung in the opera. So there's the, there's a moment where yeah. it's spotlit, um, And I just do wanna just have a second before the next question just to, because I'm staring right at Amy, who is giving Margie life in this piece. And then, so this is the last character who we haven't talked about, but she comes back several times. And she starts out as a kind of a, slightly ditzy housewife, disaffected, not in the happiest married to a marriage to a NASA scientist, two kids. She's doing all the proper housewifey things and she's stumbles into the chapel and starts to ex- examine her life and its emptiness. And she goes on a not very happy journey and in a way becomes a parallel to Mark Rothko, who was mm-hmm. unfortunately not a, a very happy human being <laughs> and had a very tragic but end and she takes self. control. You she know, takes she control. control. Mm-hmm. She mm-hmm.
5: is unafraid is she, of looking at... The darkness in her life. The darkness, the, the, darkness, the paintings, I, the beyond. I,
3: what, 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 what is important about this is that, you know, we, we, we portray a lot of... Uh, people who come into the chapel who are transformed in a positive way. Sometimes art doesn't right. do that. You know, it can, mm-hmm. it can, you know, depending on what's going on in your life. And, and, and life isn't like that. Right. All Absolutely. And, 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 I mean, that's, that's reality. And life some, is not always. Right. That. And that's what's right. beautiful about this place. It doesn't impose something on you. You have to come to it. Right. Right.
4: And sometimes the sanctuary is a way to heal and find joy or peace. And sometimes it's a place to accept that it's not okay mm-hmm. right. and, and mm-hmm. that we wanted to make sure to have a beautiful character that could go down that path. has that, that conversation. Yeah.
6: yeah. Absolutely.
0: Let's see. We'll go over here. Right over here.
6: I really love the self-discovery uh, that's in CeCe's Aria, and I'm wondering to all the panel members, when you hear something like that, does it make you reflect in retrospect of? in your own lives when your own artist was born? And if so, if you wouldn't mind sharing some of those stories. Um,
3: Yes, absolutely. And that's a lovely question. Um, Because it kind of honors what we do uh, in a a very specific way. My mother was a painter. um, And uh, she was quite a brilliant painter at one point. My my mother is actually in the character of Margie. Um, She lived a, a regimented lifestyle. She, when she raised three sons, she was not allowed to be a painter anymore. Um, and so, and I'll, I'll crack up a little bit about all of this, but um, I, I, was, I was fortunate in that she kind of said, there's something different about you. I'm gonna push you a little bit in that direction. And I think something that's happened with Cece is that she fortunately had a teacher who said, I'm gonna push you a little bit towards this. And then it it ended up, um, giving birth to an artist. Um, I, did I answer your question? I don't think I did. I really digressed <laughs> yeah. and got yeah. way too personal. Yeah. Um, other people no, certainly I,
5: I, I, Well, I'm a director, but I'm also a teacher. And in fact, I think I consider myself a teaching artist. And CC's story has really impacted me. And th- one of the wonderful things about this is that Christian who sings Tom is one of my students and I've known him now for several years and it's just such a pleasure to watch him take his journey to express himself and I think, um, you know, that's that kind of looking back on your life and realizing as you kind of try and articulate your life and, and your craft and your art and seeing someone else launch in that way. I'll,
4: I'll answer it, and then, Maestro, you have to do it well, as it's well. this going to be the most banal, <laughs> but, 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 yeah. <laughs> but... But my wife is a painter, and one of my great pleasures is we, we don't disturb each other when we're working, except I always use the excuse of, don't you think you need an espresso break <laughs> <laughs> to, to come into her studio? But sometimes she's just standing there in front of her canvas, mm-hmm. and the line that CC sings, what would make him do that? What would mm. make him choose that purple there? And it's, that's the mystery. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that's probably one of my favorite lines mm-hmm. in the whole mm-hmm. opera because it's like, only you can make that. Mm-hmm. And you know when it's the done. One. Mm-hmm. And that's, I mean, that's the miracle. And that's what we all have to love and respect about, not just the art that we make, but the, the oneness of each person. You know, only mm-hmm. you are you. And it's, it's true. Whether or not you paint with purple, <laughs>
6: your turn. <laughs>
4: um,
6: one of the things that we've talked about in rehearsal a lot is how people come in here looking for something, and then they're kind of struck dumb by the by the panels. And it's a, the, the piece huh. is a... Or struck smart. Or uh, struck smart, yeah. yeah. <laughs> struck mute <shows>. right. <laughs> uh, the It's a, the piece as a whole, I see it as, a, as an apologia for art itself, uh, because so much of our culture nowadays is, is entertainment-based, but th- this mm-hmm. is not entertainment. Right. I mean, this causes you to mm-hmm. ask questions and think, what is that? And you get close, and you Dave David and I were talking about, about needing to be able to see the... the, the individual brushstrokes and the, the very humanness of it. So, you know, it, it, on my own artistic journey, I w- I'm a pianist, I'm a concert pianist, and I, I wanted to be that guy playing the Emperor Concerto for money for, for a living, and it just never, it, it wasn't in the cards for me. But I remember that point in a child, when I was a child, my dad was a minister of music at church, and, and he was a tenor, and he, we had a, you know, a shelf of vinyl, and I was about five years old, and I put on the record of, of Pavarotti, and I couldn't stop. I played it and played it and played it. And for all these years, you know, every time that there was the opportunity to play the piano for singers, I did that. And when finally, I, you know, I played for the Met auditions in Washington D.C. in 1992 or 90, 92. Uh, and it was the day that Eric Owens won the regional competition, oh, God, wow. which I didn't realize until twenty years later. The person I remembered meeting was Patrick Carfizzi. <laughs> uh, but I went. I found this program later on. I thought, oh "My God, that's Eric Owens." So, uh, but I met the the artistic administrator at the Met that day, and uh, and he said, you know no, no, you're, you're going to come to work in the opera. And I said, no, no, I'm going to be a concert pianist. And he said, no, no, you don't choose opera. Opera chooses you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so, it does. So it does th- I think that moment yeah. of hearing the voice of Pavarotti for the first time was, was for me, like it is for these characters to come in and see these panels mm-hmm. and just to be stuck still for a moment. Yeah, mm.
2: Let's
0: see, other
6: question.
0: Oh, right here.
4: This is the mundane question from... Uh, a Rothko fan and an opera fan, mm-hmm. uh, if it's being performed twice, uh, is there going to be a recording?
3: Is it going to be recorded? Yes. We yes. hope yeah. so. Yeah. We, can you give us a big check? Because uh, <laughs> we have the singers, we have the great musicians. Uh, it's, it's very, um, recording an opera these days is very expensive mm-hmm. and it's uh, not that many people are buying them, sadly, but um, we hope uh, you know, there will be a, a continued life for this opera outside of Houston. We're we're already working on that. Um, And with that usually goes a CD. So gosh, we really want one.
4: I have a question. Uh, First of all, this is going
0: to be such a gift, or is such a gift, and we thank you very much for uh, this presentation. Uh, My question was along the same line in terms of HGO Co. And I'm not familiar with that, although I've owned season tickets to HGO in the past. But uh, what are you going to do to get this out to kids? I've been here Mm. when children have been here and walked around, and even they, at young ages, have been in awe of what they see. So what is going to happen to get this down to their level so they can experience this wonderful gift?
3: Uh, Carlene (laughs) Uh, (laughs) (laughs) give that
4: lady a microphone (laughs) I think don't you want to tour it through the school system for a whole year no but we have a whole system
1: Hmm. That
0: have and be able to share them with um uh, uh, that's such a fantastic question because i think your uh conversation your your testimony about Pavarotti hmm. you're young you know that disc or however mm-hmm. that starts is having those opportunities for encounters as early as possible i, totally I mean one agree. of my fears right now is you know, we, we're seeing cutbacks at the public school level of art, of music, drama. Uh, you know, there's rumblings out of DC of cutting- The, the NEA. <laughs> the NEA, the Ridiculous. I mean, this is a, this is a, the, your question is so uh, con- really poignant um, and is really important as people in, the, in your world are there ominous signs? Uh, you know, where are the signs of hope? Because I, I see, it's a, it's becoming a challenge in a way, to get this. One, I'll just finish this. One of the gifts that we have, both at the Manil and here, anywhere in the district, it's just the number of kids,
1: and young yeah. people
0: that come. We're, we're hosting groups every day, and it is so rewarding to see you know, seven, eight-year-olds come into this place Mm -hmm. and just go, wow. They must love it. But, you know, how do you do that and make it not an option, but it's it's part of our growing as a culture?
6: I don't see the signs of <clears throat> despair. I hear about the signs of despair from everyone, but but since I came to Houston three years ago and have gotten to work with HGO Co, we have an ensemble called Opera to Go that does about 180 mm-hmm. performances a year. They go to Miller Outdoor Theater and they mm-hmm. go to the schools and everything. And uh, I have a, I have another friend, a young clarinetist I, I played with, and and I haven't uh, hadn't played with him for about four years. And we went to Clemson University uh, about a month ago and did a recital there. And he he went to <clears throat> junior high schools and high schools for two days before I got there, and he. he Spoke to the band classes, and you know he's British, and they like the accent, and he's about that tall, and they think yeah, you know he's this little you know British Munchkin guy. Don't, don't record that. Uh, but when the we sh- the yeah. when we showed up for the recital, there were seven hundred people at a clarinet recital, and at least five hundred of them were kids. Wow. One or so. Yeah. yeah. So I think it's just putting it in front of them. If they yeah. if they have the chance to yeah. see performance right there in front of them, yeah. to talk to the performer, to touch the instrument, to I mean, I remember sitting in my school library in, in kindergarten and watching the New York City Opera tour come through, and there were there were singers that I met later in my career that I heard for the first time in my elementary school, Little Rock, in, uh, uh, elementary school library in Little Rock. So I think that's what we have to do: is just put yeah, it in we, front of them.
3: And I'll tell you um, one thing that I really love. I've written a number of big operas that are going to you know big opera houses, which is great. Um, but I found that a lot of these programs are for the dress rehearsal they invite high schools
0: yeah. from around
3: you know, the city. Uh, I wrote an opera called Silent Night and we get not only high schools but they're studying World War I because that's you know, what the opera is about. And they are the best audience, you know, it's so exciting. And if we're able to talk with them directly and learn that opera is a living thing, that there's a living composer, a somewhat living librettist, um, you know, and, and that there are these living people around who are creating a work that is supposed to be talking to them. You know, I'm, uh, I think that we, we have to continue those programs. I, I don't have, I, I, I love to hear when people are not despairing, I'm despairing all the time right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and mm-hmm. I, 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 I want to get some good news.
0: But that's the power of collaboration. And yeah. I think mm-hmm. that's the power of community, is that we, we need the both and. You know, it's that constant dialogue, the yin-yang, the, the pushing back, the, and, and, we also, and, and again, what we're hearing here tonight, we see it from different perspectives. Right. Right. You may see it from one perspective, and then you just come back from this, mm. I'm jazzed, you know, yeah. this, you you know hundreds that, of kids. You have seen that right? beautiful <clears throat>
3: video that's on Facebook about RGB, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, talking about how the country is a pendulum and it swings back and forth. Right. And right now it will swing back, you know, and I love, that That gives me hope. Gives you hope. Well, anything she says actually gives,
0: gives me you hope, <laughs> I have to say. <laughs> Other questions? Let's see, back here in the back.
7: Yes, sir. Uh, mine's more towards the musical aspect of it. So whenever you're creating the musical score, uh, how do y'all create like the invoke the emotions, but at the same time leaving it open enough for the audience to relate to it?
4: Wow, that's yeah. a great question. It is. Um, I'll answer it specific to writing opera or vocal music as opposed to instrumental music because it's slightly different. I think the very first thing that I have to do is, is really inhabit the words. That I have, to, I have to own them, I have to know what those words are saying and then I have to, I have to feel them in my body being spoken which leads to being sung And they will lead me to how they need to sound. And once that's clear, like some, and I'm, okay, we're getting musically technical. Some composers write the tunes and then they just write the chords in the piano or a little motive for the piano. I actually don't hear music that way. So from the very beginning, I'm hearing which instruments are actually supporting every vocal line. So it's actually very hard for me to deal with the piano part, because what you heard tonight, I'm not hearing the piano Mm. when when it's being played. I'm actually hearing the combinations of the instruments. So it's it's very much about finding the the truth in the text, and then finding the musical world to support that. And then there's an emotional truth. I keep using the same word, but it's gotta have an emotional truth. And if, if I hit it, and I don't always, and that's what that collaborative process is mm-hmm. like, that didn't quite get it there, or you've done too much. I mean, there yeah, were, yeah. one of the that's hardest fun. things for me in this particular mm-hmm. collaboration was one of the arias, the, the text was so incredibly beautiful to me. I overwrote it mm-hmm. because I was trying to put everything there and it it stopped actually soaring. Mm-hmm. And it took the workshop for mm-hmm. me to say, with a lot of help from my colleagues, like I had to kill off some of what I thought was the most beautiful piece of the music so that the emotional journey of that aria had a place to go so that when it finally got there, it was able to soar and emotionally evoke what, what the story was telling. And But I had to throw away things mm-hmm. that I thought were really nice, but they didn't help the piece. <laughs>
3: the great balance so, did, did, that happens... Did that
4: answer your question? Yes. Not, not quite? <laughs> no? Yes? Okay.
5: <laughs>
3: Good. One, one of the great balances that has to occur in opera, I think, is that uh, we have to make sure that music doesn't enforce an emotion, it, mm. it permits mm. one. Yeah. Sometimes it has to nudge a little bit, um, but it, but uh, one of the great mistakes that happens, I think, with a lot of young opera composers is that they think opera is about big emotion and people have to sing loudly and emotionally and they tend to push it too much into that direction instead of just simply allowing the audience to come to it. Um, and and that's, a, that's a really important thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think that was part of what was going on in that particular opera. Mm-hmm. Or Aria. Mm-hmm. Sorry.
0: Mm-hmm. Any other... Um, I think we have time for one more. One more question. Do we have a... Well, if not, that's great. I have one question to wrap it up. We use a term here that that uh, comes right out of Dominique De Manille, which is the chapel's vocation is contemplation and action, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and I, I think it's such a beautiful uh, string of of words and really deep concepts. But you know, kind of wrapping this up tonight. And uh, uh, what is your vocation? How do you see this? Is, is this a vocation? Is it a, something more than just work? I mean, is it, you know, where does this come from your, your soul? I mean, what do you, and, and both that is what do you want to leave, but what do you want this opera to leave? You know, is, is, is there something transformative that you'd like to have this opera do that's congruent with what you want to give in your lifetime while you're practicing your art? Go ahead.
4: Ah, huh. that's that's the most important question, really. Yeah, it's um, a little. I, I mean, there, <laughs> there, and there are these different ways to mm-hmm. answer it, but I think for me, and, and we just we were just talking about our other opera, As One, which is <clears throat> opening two nights from now in Denver, because we we had to write an essay about it for yeah. the Pittsburgh, I think, production uh, last week, and I think the last sentence that I wrote was. My hope is that at the end of your experience, you love Hannah, in that case, as much as we do. So for me, Tom and Margie and Cece, these are all real people and they are, they're my friends. They're all of our friends now. And I want you guys to just love these people and feel their vulnerability, feel their silliness, and, and be moved by them and, and by the space itself. So for me the success it's not whether we get I mean I'd love to get lots more productions and <laughs> yeah. all of those good things that one and hopes a for and the CD and the CD, CD. Which he's paying for. <laughs> I mean, all of those, all of those things, He just let me the check.
3: We've got you know, the money. We're ready to go. I develop. think
4: we all hope when mm-hmm. we put our soul into making yeah. art that that it has enough resonance with those that we share it with that people want it and that everybody is made better by having that experience. So I hope that all of you will love these six people and the seven instrumentalists, and, <laughs> <laughs> but, but that you will love these people and you'll think about them and they'll have touched you and they give you something in your life. That That's my hope.
3: I. I I, that's such, that's beautiful and, and elo- elo- eloquently put and um, I, I would also take it just one step farther in, in that I would hope that people come away from the opera thinking about the transformative nature of art mm-hmm. um, and not, I hate the phrase, art transforms people, I mean, come on I mean, that's like going too far, I think mm-hmm. but if we can make like a little change mm-hmm. if Cece can come in here and become an artist if Tom can be Remember his home and how these um, paintings recall the night sky around his home in Texas. If Albert can come here and question God and question what the hell's going on in the country at that moment. And um, if Alicia can come in here and remember her friend uh, Beauregard. His name is Beauregard. Um, we didn't know that before sessions. Um, and <laughs> um, if, if those kinds of things can happen, then we're demonstrating that art does have a place in society and that it's very important that we honor what this chapel is doing for mm-hmm. us, not in Houston, around the world. This is a global place. and. Um, That's what I hope, you know, that's a pretty tall order. There are also nice tunes and there's humor and it's entertainment first. That's one thing I wanna say is that I believe in art as entertainment first and entertainment Mm. is often a really reductive word to most people. Um, But the reason it is entertaining is because then we hope that people can walk away with the message, that we're not forcing it down their throats. Um, So I hope that people, I hope that we have honored this very very sacred place in the opera that we've
6: created you have to say something I, I, profound I, I, no, now i do I'm sorry i do you know what and i Tommy, can come uh, on come on uh, i'm not even touching that one <laughs> uh, but <laughs> so sorry. Did. You did. No. Yeah, that was no. really good when, so when they create something they they create something composers and and librettists put something down on paper that lives in paper and we as performing artists create something that's ephemeral and exists for, for one moment in time. We take something that's on the inside, inside of our brains, inside of our hearts, and we bring it out in public. And it's, it's a tune that lives as a, you know, as a set of standing vibrations in the air, or it's a character, it's a performance you watch that lives in your mind. And it, it actually is the, the desire to connect with people and to communicate is where that comes from, that what makes us overcome our shyness and, and dare to you know, sit down at the piano or stand up and sing, which is the hardest thing to do, you know, there's no instrument, you have to face people, and you, you know, the instrument is inside yourself, but it's that desire to communicate. It's something comes out, and it's recognized by the audience, and that is the substance of, of communication and connection, and that's what art does. I mean, it, it makes it possible for Mark Campbell to have something in common with the person in the Make America Great Again hat, uh, which, you know, you do. There's, a, there's more in common than not. And that's you You're know really that's, pushing it right now. I know. I'm Sorry. just once again and again and again. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not that benevolent. <laughs>
4: <laughs> but to, but to just, Brad's yeah. point, yeah. you know, and, and and Robin. I know you can say something. I mean, when you think about it, what a composer does is completely mm-hmm. absurd. We move sound waves around in time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's bizarre. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But then what Brad just said is so beautiful mm-hmm. about what what those sound waves. Mm-hmm.
5: You do. You can do. No. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, and I mean, we've been spending this time with these six wonderful mm-hmm. singers, performers, and uh, learning the music, finding the story. It's not a straightforward narrative. It really is about this mm-hmm. exchange um, that happens in this place, and my my vocation, my job, is to be truthful and rigorous and help to reveal them and not move them around, not impose on them, uh, but um, help them come to life. Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm.
5: And that's gonna be a lot of fun. Yeah. yeah.
0: This has been an extraordinary evening. I, uh, you know, from, from so many different levels. Um, and also just having the opportunity to get a little bit more inside how do operas Become operas. I mean, it's not something many of us know. I, I don't know how this happens on a regular basis. I will say this. My aunt was quite an opera file, if that's the right word. Uh, she, uh, when she moved to Texas from Vermont, uh, because it was getting too cold, she had HGO season uh, tickets. She was a subscriber, and we went to the opera. She passed away a few years ago, and she, she never married. She was a librarian, a uh, professor, librarian type. She had I don't know decades of back issues of Opera News, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. all cataloged and bundled, <laughs> and um, we finally gave them to the local library because mm-hmm. there was a need for it. They really wanted it, but I think it's again that passing on mm-hmm. uh, and her sharing her personal just love for opera mm-hmm. and talking about being a child in New York City and listening to the Met, and mm-hmm. it you know that's that kind of storytelling that gets you in and catches. You catch somebody's passion that you never even knew you had, but their passion hooks you somehow. So, thank you for sharing your passion, your work. Thank you for sharing your gifts tonight. This is wonderful.